So um, my name is Joe Wolf. I'm the Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Humanities here at UCL. And um, my job is a very simple one. It's first of all to welcome you all here uh, on behalf of the faculty to our first Arts and Humanities inaugural lecture of the year. Uh, it's part of a series jointly organized with the uh, Faculty of Social and Historical Sciences. And if you like the idea of inaugural lectures, we've got a brochure here, so you can come and look at, uh, listen to many more. Um, my job is simply to tell you the uh, running order for this evening. So uh, first up, just in a minute or so, is Dr. Sharon Morris from Slade, who is going to introduce our main speaker, who, of course, is Professor I'm going to forget your name here. <laughs> 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 Professor Susan Collins from, from the Slade. Is the name I haven't written down. How funny. Um, this is going to be followed by a response from Professor Sean Cubitt, who has kindly come all the way from Goldsmiths today uh, to, to reply to Susan. Uh, that is going to be a fo followed by a reception uh, a couple of floors below here in the garden room, which is almost as nice as it sounds. But uh, the food will be fantastic. But I hand over now to Sharon, who will introduce Susan. The Slade Professorial Inaugural Lecture 2014. 1871 to 1876, Edward Pointer. 1876 to 1892, Alphonse Legros. 1892 to 1917, Fred Brown. 1918 to 1930, Henry Tonks. 1930 to 1948, Randolph Schwab. 1948 to 1975, Sir William Coldstream. 1975 to 1985, Sir Lawrence Gowing. 1985 to 1988, Patrick George. 1988 to 2000, Bernard Cohen. 2000 to 2010, John Aiken. 2010, Susan Collins. It is a great pleasure for me to introduce Professor Susan Collins, the first woman director of the Slade and the first woman Slade professor. A Slade professor in the lineage of dedicated artists and teachers who have sought to inspire generations of students, young artists who have left the Slade to make their mark in the visual arts and the wider culture, not only in the UK but internationally. A Slade professor inspiring all of us who work at the Slade to contribute to that river of creativity. As director of the Slade, Susan has worked ceaselessly for the good of the school and has in this period, and those of us in academia will understand these onerous arcane terms, supported us through an internal quality review and a REF research excellent framework return. A research return which, whatever score we may eventually be awarded, reveals the amazing diversity of our research activity. Susan has thrown open the doors of the Slade to the rest of UCL and the result has been an efflorescence of interdisciplinary activity, collaborations and interactions between staff and students at all levels and across many departments and faculties. This is characteristic of Susan's open vision for the Slade, encouraging and supporting staff and students to stage public-facing events, 
a major growth area for the Slade. To cite a few examples of Susan's innovations for the school, last year's first Slade print fair, a highly successful foray into celebrating prints by students, staff, alumni and friends to raise funds for student scholarships, the British Council Inspire project with Bangladesh, the Slade website that not only gives all the current information but also tracks the achievements of alumni and in so doing fosters continuity. The Slade Archive project, which will preserve and make accessible the unique history of the Slade, including a crowdsourcing project that brings together alumni in identifying faces and past group photographs. Susan Collins, with a number of Slade staff, including myself, is an alumnus whose personal history in the institution lies close at hand. And to be never too far from the vagaries of our youth, hopefully makes us all more tolerant. Susan has the Slade at heart. Appointed to the Slade in 1995, Susan set up SEMFA, the Slade Centre for Electronic Media and Fine Art, dedicated to artists' exploration of the parameters and possibilities of electronic media. This made its mark in the wider public arena with a series of seminars at the ICA and an Arts Council-funded exhibition framed 2006 at the Slade's Research Centre, Woburn Square. Susan is an artist with a considerable international reputation, exhibiting recently in the UK, Canada, Denmark, the Netherlands, Germany, Switzerland, Bulgaria, Tasmania, the USA, Mexico, Turkey and Thailand. Her public commissions include a wildlife surveillance system for Classroom of the Future and Underglow, a network of illuminated drains for the Corporation of London. Invited to give lectures and public talks internationally, Susan is an authority in the field of new media art. Art whose raison d'etre is solely technological innovation rarely persists through the evanescent transformations of the digital, but Susan's artwork will. From her early groundbreaking public installations, for example, in conversation, Susan highlights engagement with her audience. The work is fun, joyous, playful in the best sense of creative play. I think it's this unique quality that makes Susan an outstanding director of the school and Slade professor. Her phenomenal energy is devoted to making the best of things, to innovation, to play as the foundation of creativity, which in turn releases that potential in staff and students. We are here to celebrate Susan's very real achievements as an artist and teacher, and to take delight in UCL's just recognition with this professorship. I'm sure we're all looking forward to Susan's presentation, so aptly entitled Transporting Skies. No doubt we will be dazzled by the intense, jewel-like, 24-hour moving still that has changed our view and understanding of landscape photography. Please welcome Professor Susan Collins. The sky is no longer the limit. Not sure quite how I could follow that. Um, 
live up to it. Thank you. Um, thank you so much, Joe and Sharon. So glad I asked you to do the introduction. That was fabulous. Thank you very much and incredibly, incredibly generous. Um, I do have to say, I do have to put some records straight in terms of all of those um, fabulous things that we've all at, at the Slade innovated over the last um, few years. Uh, they weren't solely my responsibility. There are some people here that really made an awful lot of things happen that I sort of perhaps sparked, but I'm very grateful to them for making it happen. I didn't do all of that single-handedly at all. So um, I'm going to sit. I hope you don't mind, but it's sort of less scary somehow to do that. And I'm going to turn the lights down just a little bit so that the images hopefully will have a little bit more power. So I'd like to thank all of you for coming. Um, it's really wonderful to see so many familiar faces. Um, faces here from different parts of UCL, um, obviously from the Slade, great to see staff and students, and also from beyond. And I know there are quite a few people here that have actually had quite a lot to do with um, some of the work that I'm actually showing today. And I'm grateful to all of you, and I'm probably not going to be naming anyone, <laughs> but you know who you are. So. Um, I'm very honoured, I'm incredibly honoured at the turnout that you've all come today. Thank you so much. So today I'm going to show a selection of work. Um, it's going to span a couple of decades. And um, the way I've sort of framed it in selecting the work is that I've chosen to, um, to really structure the talk around the open system and the works that I've made that really rely on a kind of open system um, in order for them to actually sort of happen. And... I hope that as I kind of talk about the different pieces of work, because they're all quite different, um, what I mean by an open system will make sense. Um, so first, I'm, I'm going to talk very briefly about where the work began and where it's come from and the process of inquiry involved. And as Sharon mentioned, I studied at the Slade myself, um, initially in sculpture, later in painting, and I began using computers for my work while still a student here in the 1980s, at a time when very few artists were using computers. Um, and in fact, it was the basement of computer science next door. I discovered a research, um, fabulous research assistant who was making a very basic drawing program, and I became their user tester, and probably spent every evening in my final year in the computer science basement. and. That sort of shows you what things sort of looked like then. Um, it wasn't really something that was encouraged at the time. If anything, it was rather actively discouraged. And so I was as surprised as anyone, and certainly um, those who were at college with me at the time were also um, pretty surprised when I found myself in the rather unlikely position, but very exciting position, of setting up the electronic media area here um, in 1995. What intrigued me initially about working with computers were the opportunities afforded by that thing that we really take for granted now, we don't give it a second thought, memory. And it was the ability to make a drawing, save it, it was that basic. Make a drawing, save it, take it too far, ruin it, give it away but still have it. That's what really excited me and those are things we don't even think about now. And when I was doing it at the time, it, it led me to make long sequences of drawings 
And these became visual narratives, and the visual narratives begged to be animated. And this was just about the time in, in the late 1980s when it became possible to animate drawings on desktop computers. So I began animating drawings on desktop computers. And then I made some short film animations, and my work found its way to a number of animation screenings and film festivals. But soon I became... That, that seemed quite a sort of limited audience, and although those happen worldwide, I realised it was the same group of people worldwide that were that were sort of seeing the work. And it's I, I was sort of more interested in getting out into the real world and actually became very interested in taking the moving image beyond the screen and into real space, into public spaces, and in doing so, collaging um, the moving image with real spaces and, and architectures. So in the early 1990s, I made a series of um, projected temporary interventions into public spaces. And these were intended to be very discrete moments that could be stumbled across in the street, such as this piece, Litter, which showed an animated uh, trompe l'oeil um, of a banana peeling and unpeeling itself. And people would just come across it, and there was nothing really to explain it. It was just something you just came across, and you, know, you stopped and looked, or you moved on. And at the time I made the work, and, and others like it, video projection was actually a rarity and certainly very unexpected in a street context, so that these works really did appear as if by magic, with no obvious source or origin, and the images um, were composed very much as self-contained animated objects, hence the kind of trompe l'oeil result. So the intention for these, these works was very anti-spectacle. It was to create a very personal encounter, and also I think it was a desire to, to really sort of quietly alter um, the given expectations of very ordinary, everyday situations and, and spaces. So many of these works were responsive to passers-by, so that um, I made, I, I sort of moved on from straight sort of video projection to works that um, actually um, responded to a sensor, and, and so people would realise that they were kind of triggering some change in, the, in, the, in, in what they were sort of seeing. And um, so the viewers or the passers-by, whether intentionally or not, became quite implicated in the choreography and the unfolding of the images. And sight was central to, to the works. They, they became animated collages, co collaborations with the paving, the street scene, the location, whether it was a train station, um, which this one was. Um, and the works only really were completed, they couldn't be completed in the studio, they could only really be completed when they were out there in situ on the street. And in this particular piece, Touched, there was a series of video projections of hands which you couldn't see anything at all, the walls were sort of bleached with light, but as you walked through the space, the hands would stroke you and caress you as you walked through. So. Basically, the work only existed in the presence of the viewer as they passed through the gallery space. So all of this work I really regarded as sort of work, um, work in progress. It couldn't be realised in the studio as it relied in lots of different ways on various sort of expected behaviours within specific contexts. And so, in a sense, each of these pieces, I was very fortunate to be kind of commissioned to do these very public experiments um, in choreography and interaction, and each work really learnt from the last, and each work, in a sense, always raises questions that you then want to explore in the next piece of work. And in a way, that's everything I show you 
everything I'm going to show you today really comes out of that, a sort of sense of questioning or exploration or really interrogating a, a situation or circumstance. So um, the next piece I'm going to show you um, is one that Sharon sort of briefly referred to, and it was called In Conversation. And I was very keen to create a more open system to give the viewer not just the chance to trigger a piece of work, but to really sort of inhabit the work and become really quite active in its realisation. And I was also very keen to extend my exploration of public sites and situations to the then very emerging public space of the internet. So this whole series of kind of street works culminated for me in 1997 with a work called In Conversation, which brought together these two very different forms of public space, the street and the internet. Um, and it provided the means for the people on the street and the people on the internet to have a live conversation with each other via a camera, microphone, speech recognition software, and a projected mouth on the pavement. And this is the web interface from its first outing in 1997. For those uh, younger of you in the auditorium, this may look a little bit archaic already. It's not actually that long ago, but you can kind of tell. I think it was Netscape. Some of you probably haven't even heard of Netscape, was the web browser then. Um, it was at a time of dial-ups, people dial-up modems. I actually was going to try and find the sound of dial-up modem to accompany this, but I didn't get around to it, but um, some of you will remember what dial-up modems were like. And, um, and so that really kind of influenced, in a sense, it was a piece that happened on the cusp of a moment, on the cusp of a kind of moment where people began using the um, internet in quite a particular way. And it was in, installed in a number of different locations over a four-year period. Um, and I'd just like to show you a short clip of what happened when the work was shown in Amsterdam in 1998 just very please work <coughs> that's very annoying hey what your name Egyptian. I'm Egyptian. 
You're standing in the picture. <laughs> I, I don't think you mean to. No, I, you have to talk in the microphone. Okay. Read. I'm from Chicago. They don't seem to like Chicago. I am a bit slow tonight. So he stays there for about 17 minutes and um, becomes really kind of manipulated and quite captivated by the voice. Um, I've got hours and hours and hours of footage that I haven't even looked at of the way people kind of behaved with this. This, this piece I think people would just part, sort of walk straight past today. I don't think it's extraordinary today but then it had a different kind of... Um, it was a very, in a very different cultural context. And at the time it, it launched in the 1990s, people in Britain were very keen to meet each other on the internet. There was quite a sort of thing around that, and far less so on the street. So I was really aiming for the piece to work on a technical level, given that it was using very early version of streaming technology with dial-up modems um, and I was very but I was very curious about what might actually happen in terms of any real communication. And in 1997, there were very few online streaming channels, um, and even fewer that were streaming video. So it was listed. There were sort of these online listings that listed it along, uh, alongside things like the ITN News and the US Stock Exchange. And so the piece went global really very quickly. And so viewers were kind of dialing in from all over the world, um, Australia, Germany, Japan, South Africa, um, and, and sort of to name a few. And in practice, there were there were very there were many different responses to in conversation. There was the obvious indifference we all know about that, um, but there were some individuals that came back day after day to the street um, in Brighton when it especially when it first came out and and made dates with their new virtual friends to come back the following day. And um, there were many for whom at this time this was their first experience of actually using the internet albeit without any, or maybe because there was no real visible interface, they weren't having to kind of deal with the computer in order to make that um, contact. If there was no one in the street, for instance, when it was raining, online users would take over and turn the street into a chat channel. At other times, online users would encourage people in the street to perform, um, quite literally, uh, sing a song or dance, and sometimes using the text dialogue to create percussive, rhythmic um, music. Um, and while the person on the street could only hear one voice, the, the voice you heard, which was inexplicably slow in that particular clip, um, the words that they could hear would have been written and sent by many different users, and sometimes the words stumbled out on top of each other and, and formed an equivalent of a sort of collective sentence, and that often altered the original intended meaning, sometimes in quite dramatic ways. And in those pre-Skype days, there was a time lag, and the time lag involved an average of about 10 seconds or so, so that often the participants would be answering questions really out of sync. And for me, those slippages and those imperfections were really quite integral 
to um, to the work. And I think that's, I suppose, um, something that I take forward with all the work that I do, that those things become the material of it, they become part of it. And questions that emerge from a work like this include, where is the work? Who's the viewer? Are the viewers the subject or the object? Are they the observer or, or the observed? And um, I became very interested in, in questions of authorship, multiple perspective, uh, in relation to what was essentially, uh, open system word again, an open system within which the work or the narrative really sort of plays itself out. And what seemed really quite extraordinary in the 1990s, um, such as an animated trompe l'oeil projection of a banana on the street, or a live conversation between Brighton and Australia via an animated mouth on the pavement, um, seems actually really a lot less extraordinary, even commonplace in the 2000s or the 21st century. Um, so I've stopped. That's a piece of work that literally has happened within a sort of specific um, framework, and the last time I showed it was in 2001. Um, street projections and moving images in public spaces have really become quite commonplace now and very commercial. And Skype, broadband and Wi-Fi um, have rendered what was extraordinary, magical and surprising, which for me was my kind of material that I kind of played with, um, it sort of rendered them really less than ordinary, kind of quite retro even. So as technology moves on and cultural expectations and the implications of such encounters then shift, the challenge for artists, I suppose like me, working with those technologies also shift. So um, in working in response to two specific sites and situations, one thread much of the work has in common uh, is to make the viewer, or has had in common, is to make the viewer part of the process, and often part of the work itself. And another thread, um, which I'm about to talk about, has been a collision, and often a collaging of the real and um, the virtual. But the next piece I'm going to show you was made specifically for an online context, but could be seen as a collaging of the real and the imagined. And... Um, in 2001, I was invited by the Tate to propose a work for their website. And in doing so, I thought quite a lot about the Tate, um, about their then very recent rebranding. It had become Tate rather than the Tate, um, with color-coded branches, which you can see here. Um, I considered what it might be about Tate and its website, um, because the website, I mean, the, there was also a thing at, at, this, at this time, artists like me who were sort of making work online had no visibility and still don't have a huge amount of visibility in some of the more mainstream um, art spaces in the country. But a number of them opened up these online avenues and, and a number of us were invited to make work for them that still, in a sense, would only be visible again to the same audience, possibly. Um, I think at that time, a lot of people, um, at that time, a, a lot of the people that had, would visit the gallery or perhaps were curating the gallery didn't even look at the website. So there were certain things that could sometimes happen under the radar. But this uh, was a time also on the cusp where people were beginning to go to websites for information. So things were just in that sort of process of change. 
So I sort of considered what it might be about Tate and its website that I could respond to in a really site or situation-specific way, and in particular what this opportunity might let me do that I couldn't do otherwise independently, because I could already make websites and I had space on the UCL server, so it, it had to be something I really wanted to do, something that played with the Tate. And so Tate in Space emerged as an idea that might give an opportunity to act as a bit of a catalyst, a bit of an agent provocateur, to explore a range of ideas and issues, including the nature of cultural ambition. And so um, in response to my invitation, I sent uh, Tate a proposal that played on contemporary and then relatively recently introduced um, UK funding criteria, such as widening access and a search for new audiences in outer space. And I stipulated that I would only do this, I was only interested in doing this online commission if it could be properly integrated into the Tate site itself. So, and here you have it, Tate in Space. Um, it launched on July the 1st, 2002, and it was in its active um, phase for its first 12 months when it could be reached from the Tate homepage here. Um, it's still available on the Tate website, although the link from the homepage is no longer there and the Tate website design's really moved on so it isn't integrated in the way that it was um, that first year. It's uh, modelled very much on the layout of uh, the then existing Tate websites and Tate in Space has its own colour which comes from the Tate corporate branding palette. As part of the work, I commissioned architectural propositions for a Tate in Space from Etalab, the Extraterrestrial Architecture Laboratory, Softroom, and Sarah Wigglesworth Architects. And these included uh, PDF plans for, as you see here, which this is the Sarah Wigglesworth one, um, for paper architectural models which could be downloaded from the website, printed out, and assembled at home. And there was also an international student architecture competition to design this new Tate, and there were entries from several countries. The website um, incorporates um, a section on space art, and that actually includes an essay against, against gravitropism, art, and the joys of levitation by Eduardo Katz. And there's also an online discussion forum with contributions from space artists, writers, curators, where issues and questions in relation to space, art, and architecture were, were raised. And they included things like, why are Tate in space? Space art or space pollution? Um, cultural ambition and the search for new audiences? Um, Tate in space and Earth centricity? Who and where is the audience? Um, the site's visiting information section include, included an an interactive live webcam from a fictive Tate in Space satellite, plus scientifically calculated sightings data from a range of global locations to enable visitors to view the Tate satellite from Earth. Um, there's also information on job opportunities at Tate in Space, no vacancies, um, and an FAQ section. So as you might have guessed, the site is a blend of fact and fiction. The facts, it is a site on the Tate site. The space art history is an essay by Eduardo Katz, who's also better known for the um, fluorescent green bunny, but that's another story. Um, 
I did work with architects and space scientists from um, and, and the space scientists from our very own Mullard um, Space Lab. Um, the data for the sightings of the satellite has been mathematically calculated and would be absolutely accurate if there was a satellite up there. Um, there was a discussion list with over 100 real subscribers, including some very active artists and curators in the field of space art. And as the director of the new Tate, I really did take on a, a very time-consuming job for a year. The fictions, there is no satellite. The webcam is an interactive construct. In fact, it's made, it's, the image is a, a, is a little bouncy ball that I filmed on my table at home. Um, and as far as I know, Tate still have no plans to develop a gallery in space. And I, I think of Tate in space as an example of interactive or immersive fiction. And it's a fiction that one could choose to buy into and contribute to or not. And in interviews, the novelist Margaret Atwood has used the, the phrase speculative fiction instead of science fiction, and I really like that. She offers the word speculative as a fiction that's rooted in potentiality, with developments in the present suggesting a possible or plausible future. And um, for me, Tate and Space um, was intended as just such a speculation, um, making sense for that very particular moment in time with the advent of space tourism and a renewed interest in space by both the art community and the wider public. It was very important to me that the site, whilst clearly satirical on one level, was not simply a plausible one-liner. It was important to me that it was very thoroughly and accurately researched and that while it remains fictive or speculative, it's actually no longer particularly far-fetched. To some extent, the site became almost too plausible. Soon after it was launched, um, the information staff at Tate Modern received a call from the British National Space Centre. They had some queries about the new Tate and Space programme, and in particular the Tate satellite in orbit, and they wanted, they wanted to know if Tate had proper permissions for their space explorations. So the work, the work became virus-like, quite uncontainable, rumours and fiction spilling out both on and offline, often via supposedly reliable news sources such as Reuters and CNN. And at one point, Canada's leading daily newspaper, The Globe and Mail, was holding its front page for a Tate and Space exclusive. And although I sort of stayed in role for the first year, um, and my role, in a sense, was to be the director of the online programme, so it was a plausible role. Um, and I tried not to break role for that first year, although lots of people wondered why I got to do that and how come I got that job. But... Um, <laughs> Um, really, I mean, people that knew me as well. But, um, but I couldn't let the Globe and Mail do, like it was sort of career suicide for the, for the um, journalist that really was trying to kind of run that story. So that didn't appear as an exclusive, but it could have done. But what appeared to me to be really striking was the genuine and in some cases quite willful desire to believe with each participant really bringing their own extraterrestrial cultural fantasies. Uh, to the project. So while in conversation and Tate and Space, each in different ways worked with network technology to set up systems which allowed uh, viewers or human participants to influence the way the work played out and developed, I'm now going to show a selection of works which look at uh, time and transmission and also the elements as part of their, fa their fabric. 
And this series of work began in 2002 when, as a response to In Conversation, I was invited to make a new piece for an exhibition for New Lynn Art Gallery in Cornwall, which had just had its first broadband connection installed. And the result of the piece I ended up proposing was a simultaneous two-gallery solo show called Transporting Skies. And Transport, which is the name of this talk. Um, Transporting Skies relayed a live video image of Sky between Sight Gallery in Sheffield, Yorkshire, and New Lynn Art Gallery in Cornwall. And in Sheffield, the sky from New Lynn was projected very large on the wall of the gallery, and in Newlyn, um, the sky from um, Sheffield was integrated into the physical architecture of Newlyn Gallery's um, lantern ceiling for any of you that sort of visited that particular space. But both effectively provided a transmitted light source for the alternative location. And in Newlyn, the effect of the projection was, was to make the ceiling appear to be transparent, like taking the lid off the gallery itself, and in the process revealing the remote um, Sheffield sky as a, a fresco un unfolding in, in real time. And the intention was to introduce some of the trompe installation qualities of Italian fresco painting, which are themselves virtual environments from an earlier century, to, uh, to introduce those to the very contemporary world of, of the internet, streaming media, and connectivity. So the exhibition took place in November and in November, the days in northern Sheffield were noticeably shorter than in Newlyn on the southwest coast. So the projection of the Cornish sky at Sight Gallery would show daylight for some time after it had actually grown dark on the streets outside. At twilight, and this is an example of twilight, the transmission process became more apparent with the pixelated digitization and the compression becoming very sort of visible with the, with the um, streaming sky taking on a, a certain sort of abstract, painterly, even Klimt-like uh, visual quality. But in, in making this piece of work um, between these two spaces, both spaces um, quite particular and, and very different, um, similar size. I wanted to make a second work for the show, for both places, but one that might provide a live connection between the two, that might also provide a, a live connection between the two galleries, but one that could actually locate the work more specifically to place, to each place. Um, and in doing so, I was um, very influenced by the fact that the first transatlantic wireless Morse code message was transmitted by Marconi from Cornwall. And more pragmatically, um, despite their new broadband connection, I had very little bandwidth left to play with after the live video exchange of Sky. And the piece of work that emerged through this very pragmatic kind of how can I actually make a piece of work when I've got this much bandwidth, I'm still working on sort of versions of the piece that I actually kind of made um, as an experiment as part of this show. So I wondered, I wondered how I might transmit images or information live in real time between these two spaces in a way that used only the very, very smallest amount of data. And initially, because of the Morse connection, I really you know, considered what it would be like to transmit an image by Morse code. And I sort of speculated on how long it would take and what it might look like. And 
Um, but, but then that didn't feel real because the, the material I was working with was digital and the pixel. And so um, it really was that process of thinking that led to the development of my very first pixel landscape works. And I employed the pixel as the unit of transmission instead of the dot or the dash. So using very, very basic desktop webcams, the ones that you now get photographed in sort of the airport with exactly the same, you can actually see that is the green LED light shining back. It was in a window. You can see that that's the interference of the green LED light. Um, but so using this sort of very basic technology, I developed a, a method of updating images by a pixel a second and starting in the top left-hand corner and writing, a bit like you write on a page, writing horizontally all the way down the screen until the bottom right corner, at which point it starts at the top left again and writes over the previous um, image. The images were a very low resolution, they still are actually, um, of 320 by 240 pixels. So that at the rate of a pixel a second, a whole image was made up of individual pixels collected over 76,800 seconds. That's about 21.33 hours, which meant that each image takes just under a day to complete. And it was a complete experiment. Um, I had no idea when I set this up, and slightly high risk, two gallery solo show, I had no idea what the work was actually going to look like, or what the images might actually reveal. And, and it was full of surprises um, in constructing the image in this way over time. The permanent and the ephemeral uh, become more apparent. The presence of a passing bird or person or car or other kind of object um, appeared as just stray pixels, you know, fleck-like interruptions in the image. Um, in Newlin, um, this image is sort of one of Newlin, um, nighttime appears as this very strong band of black with only the lights, these are the lights of Penzance uh, puncturing uh, the darkness. And the normally very subtle fluctuations in light that we experience without even thinking throughout the course of the day became really immediately apparent in the banding effect which appears in the images also. And in, in both of these um, works, Transporting Skies and this pixel landscape work, um, Time and the network together contributed to both the fabric and the unfolding of um, the landscape images. So I've since, that, that began a whole decade's worth of, of work, and more than a decade, and I've since play, placed cameras in, in a number of locations, um, resulting in works including some I'm about to show you, including Finlandia, which was developed with film video umbrella, where a networked camera was uh, placed on the roof of a 17th century coaching inn in rural Cambridgeshire for a year. That sort of give you a sense of the location. And here are some images that came from the camera. I don't move the camera, the camera's absolutely static, so any change in the image is a change in the image, not the movement of the camera. And a second piece that followed um, Finlandia was Glenlandia, which was developed with um, Horsecross horse in Perth, 
where a camera was installed in a fisheries research laboratory and it was looking out over Loch Fuscali in um, Perthshire, Scotland for two years. And I see these works as directly referencing a European landscape tradition and quite deliberately trading on perceived conventions of how a landscape painting might be composed. And while both compositions appeared to be of natural landscapes, technology was in fact embedded seamlessly into both images. With Fenlandia, the camera was looking out over a technological marvel of an earlier age, the Fens of Cambridgeshire, a reclaimed land of ditches and drains. And while the subject of um, Glenlandia, which we're looking at now, um, Loch Foscali, is in fact a man-made loch which services a hydroelectric dam in Pitlochry. And the water levels in the loch rise and fall dramatically according to the level of demand for um, electricity in the neighbouring glens. And to some extent, this process kind of recorded that. So I'm just showing you a few images from Glenlandia. And this is an image of the loch when it's completely empty. Um, when lined up together, the images give another sense of time. They reveal all sorts of shifts and changes from um, the thinning and widening band of night time, which shows the lengthening and shortening days throughout the year. So this is obviously high summer. And high summer in Scotland, is you know you get longer days, obviously, than, than further south. Um, so just a few more images. And there were other things that were revealed. For example, this full moon that Glenlandia, Glenlandia occasionally captured, and which appears as very much as if a white comet streaking through the night sky, but it's, it's actually the moon slipping through the image over time. And that image was captured the day after I set up the camera, and I'd never seen the moon in my previous um, pixels landscape captures. And it was the first time I'd seen it, and I, I didn't know what it was, and then it sort of occurred, I realised, and I thought it was quite extraordinary that to, to make something like that visible, which we know happen, but, but you don't have a sort of um, way of capturing. And I view this work as a kind of open system, um, a set of parameters I put in place and which play themselves out of, over time. And often, as in the case of the moon being captured, streaking through the sky, being surprised myself by. And it's a system in, in, inhabited and activated by light, day, night, weather, movement of the sun, the moon, the seasons, and all of these really analogue variables that conspire to produce really quite an infinite variety of unique images. There are also human interventions um, beyond stray pixel appearances um, which make themselves visible. And um, on the solstice, oh, on the 20th of December in 2004 in Finlandia, the tree which was very carefully composed to the left of my image mysteriously disappeared from view and initially I thought the camera may have moved in strong winds but everything else was absolutely as it should be and I found out later that the tree had been chopped down um, because of subsidence and, and thereafter all of the Fenlandia images have a sort of bleaker, more abstract and sort of less Arcadian feel to them. 
But I was quite interested in developing further this potential for abstraction in the work. And I'd begun looking at the seascape as a potential subject when, conveniently, I was invited um, to make a work with Film and Video Umbrella and the De La War Pavilion, Bexel on Sea, uh, a modernist icon on the southeast coast of England. I don't know how many of you have visited the De La War Pavilion, but sort of amazing building. Um, and it has a long wall of picture windows looking directly out to sea. And so the resulting piece of work was called Seascape. Sorry, these are just some images of the De La War aspect. So um, I made a piece of work called Seascape. It was a panorama of live feeds constructing images in a very similar way um, over time from five locations across the southeast coast of England over, over the course of a year. Um, Bexhill was, was at the centre. So between March and October 2008, I installed net network cameras at different vantage points along the coast. So a lot of this is researching the kinds of places one could put a camera. So there was a private house in Margate. There was Lee's Cliff Hall in Folkestone. The Dillawar Pavilion itself. A private house in Pagham. Um, and which is near Bognor Regis, and a beach cafe in Stokes Bay near Gosport, which kindly, all of those locations very kindly allowed me to, to, to have cameras there for a year. And for the exhibition at the De La War Pavilion, um, five live projections showing the seascapes being constructed in real time were projected into the windows against the backdrop of the actual live coast itself and if you're about five foot seven the horizon and the projections might actually match the um horizon itself behind i'm a bit taller than that but you know it kind of worked so in in seeking and this is sort of gives you a sense a bit more of a sense of of how that kind of works um in seeking the potential for abstraction i set the view for each camera to, to frame the sea and the sky with a a common horizon line and I largely left out any landmark features from the images. So sea and sky often became quite interchangeable and false horizons were created through the, the very horizontal construction of the image combined with quite fast changing light and um, weather conditions. So each image actually becomes a slice or a section of this very continuous panorama that's the southeast coast. Unlike the landscapes, um, each image here was actually made from individual pixels collected over just under seven hours, approximately the time it takes for the tide to come in or go out. When you're actually looking at the live image, there's a very active engagement. So the images that were on the screen against the sea if you looked very closely, they, they're, they're very much like moving stills. They look like still images, but if you found the pixel where the pixel was updating, you would actually start following that sort of now moment, and that became the sort of moment of right now um, in the work. Whereas for the prints, um, which you'll see a few of soon, um, the right now moment was the moment at which the image was actually captured and archived, the still stills. This gives a sense, this is in Stokes Bay, and you can actually really get a sense of um, 
the kind of boat traffic, that could be boats, that could be um, windsurfers, all of those pixels are kind of marking activity, quite colourful activity in this very busy sort of channel. So all you can do is kind of code and decode, in a sense, the images and suppose or try and extrapolate what might have taken place. It's flipping through quite quickly. And so this is a, a sense of the installation in the um, space. The prints are actually more contemplative. You, you're not sort of concerned with seeking the, the moving pixel. And um, you can actually, the, the large prints, you can, each pixel represents a moment in time and you can really recognize that with the color of each individual pixel. There was a long piece in the gallery, um, which I entitled Seven Days in June, and it showed a continuous timeline over seven days in June of the seascape view from the Delawar Pavilion. And the images within this timeline um, are constructed in exactly the same way as the other prints in the show, um, only those printed very seamlessly end to end so that the ebb and flow of night into day might actually reveal the way that time's embedded within the image in a more visible, tangible way. And here are some... Here are some images of it being made in the basement of the Slade. It took seven hours overnight. And this is it installed. So jumping forward to the present, my most recent pixel-based camera work is still running. And it was installed last autumn, looking north from ASC Studios on Blackfriars Road. And this current camera records the very new London skyline, the shard, walkie-talkie, gherkin et al, as it continues to take shape. And here are just a couple of images from it. So while this process reveals some things, such as the movement of the moon through the sky in Glenlandra, it misses others. Um, so, for example, in Seascape, the most violent lightning storm would appear as just a very few stray pixels and it would give away very little sense of a turbulent sea. So a representation of a very familiar subject, it's reality, but not as one normally witnesses, witnesses it. Hours compress into a single frame and time shifts. Um, and while the source for the image may have come from a landscape or seascape, the image has got the potential to become autonomous, something else, um, with, with um, the accrual of the image over time bringing its own set of artefacts and abstractions. So a parallel series of works um, I've explored over the past few years are light-based commissions for public spaces. Um, Sharon mentioned Underglow, uh, a network of illuminated drains for the City of London. And here are just a few images of that. And Chaser, which transformed the top floor of the Tynebridge Tower and Gateshead into a very fast-moving uh, light circuit of colour. You're just seeing a still, but it, it, whizzed, it sort of whizzed round. Um, so I'd like to finish by showing you some documentation of a very recent light-based piece which also relied on an open system for its realisation. Uh, last summer I was invited by modus operandi to make a temporary light installation for Oxford's new Radcliffe Observatory Quarter which was to coincide with Oxford's Light Night Festival in November, last November. And I chose to make a work for the observatory itself which is an extraordinary building in the grounds of Green Templeton College. Um, and it's based on the original Tower of the Winds in Athens, which, depending on 
There's some discrepancy about whether it's 50 BC or 2 BC, depending, but it's very old. Um, The tower is octagonal. Uh, There are friezes on it depicting the deities of the winds on each face, um, representing each of the eight wind directions. Although the Radcliffe Observatory is no longer a working astronomical observatory, the Radcliffe Weather Station, which you see in the foreground here in the gardens of the college, is still uh, monitored daily by the Department of Geography. And I believe that the data is still used by the Met Office in terms of climate information. We installed a parallel weather station uh, alongside the existing one, and this weather station transmitted weather data to a lighting system which was installed in the observatory itself. And each light was programmed to respond dynamically to meteorological variables live in real time, and it linked the work very specifically with its uh, location, both geographically and historically. Um, so a wind vane was calibrated to match the octagon itself, each window representing one of eight wind directions. And as the wind vane turned, it highlighted the corresponding window on the observatory itself. And when the wind blew, the four small upper lights in the observatory glowed green. So that would happen just occasionally. Just, they'd just breathe. Um, the piece was active from dusk until midnight, and transformed the observatory into a a sort of lantern driven by that evening's weather and visible across Oxford. And the lighting colour was determined by the outside temperature. Um, The expectation was that it would be warmest at dusk, then getting colder as the evening progressed. So the warmest colour was set to amber, moving through red and um, purple, and to the colder setting, which is um, blue. I don't know if any of you know Jack Strange's piece, which is called Spinning Beach Ball of Death, but it's fantastic. I just want to mention that now. Um, So I'm just going to show you this time-lapse film, which really films it from um, dusk um, dusk till midnight. So, and I'll just finish while it's playing uh, behind me. Um, So in creating works which rely on open systems for their realization, whether it's predictability or the predictability or unpredictability of human nature or the British weather. Um, As a maker, I create the structure and I let the work play out, hoping for some sort of unanticipated surprises to emerge in the process. And Umberto Eco, in his essay, The Poetics of the Open Work, Uh, describes the Baroque period as a breakthrough from a singular to a multiple perspective, one that induces the spectator to shift his position or her uh, position continuously in order to see the work in constantly new aspects. But I propose that the very nature of the networked artwork suggests an inevitable multiple perspective. I think it offers the potential for developing works where the openness of the system or the structure itself relates not simply to the position of the viewer in reading the work, but underpins the very fabric of the work, the scale of its potential and its realisation. And now it's blue. Thank you very much.
great pleasure and honour to um, congratulate our first woman professor at the Slade. It's an extraordinary experience, both because this is a historic occasion uh, for the school and for academia in general, and also because Susan is, as you've all been able to, those of you who don't know her yet, um, we've been able to see she is an extraordinary person, extraordinary artist, and has inspired extraordinary loyalty and affection from her staff, as Sharon showed us at the beginning. Um, I've known Susan since the Amiga, um, in a back studio in Farnham at the art school at West, what was then West Surrey, um, and the going for goldfish animation that was part of the celebration of Man well, probably slightly premature celebration of Manchester's bid to host the Olympic Games. Um, and since then, our paths have crossed in, in all sorts of extraordinary ways. I, one of those for me that was most poignant was uh, the moment of Fenlandia, which portrays a part of the world that I grew up in and whose strange aesthetic is a very, very difficult, very remote one to capture. And few artworks that I can think of have, have ever managed to capture the Fens in the way that that work did. There are two things that I think, or three, that perhaps we should appreciate most about this. One is in amongst those pixel landscapes, but also elsewhere, one of the things that's quite extraordinary is there are occasionally those flickers of light, I think I've just spotted one, um, which just could be the moon, could have been a passing seagull or an aeroplane, and sometimes, because of the nature of the equipment, may just be random quantum effects that occur inside computer chips. And there's a beautiful uncertainty about this. The, what I take home from it is such a rich part of this practice. In an era when data visualization has almost become a cliche, uh, in the way that in the 1990s, everything was in a vitrine. There's a certain kind of art making which everything is kind of data visualization. One of the things that is really wonderful about Susan's work is that it is a genuine collaboration between three modes of being that we tend to think of as utterly distinct. That is to say, the human, the technological, the natural processes. Those of you who are philosophically inclined to probably be thinking of Karen Barad, and I think you should in this context. Um, the second is the extraordinary humor and affection that Susan brings to her work, as she does indeed to life, but that suffuses the, the work, which does not therefore lose its seriousness, as Sharon was saying, but actually makes it deeper when we consider the intimacy of those hands, which I remember very vividly, um, the projected hands, the, um, the sound installation you did, which had the, as, at its moment of highest intensity, a rang <laughs> in an earphone, it's, uh, the, which is at once extraordinarily funny, but is also about the 
magic and terror that we have about intimacy and physical proximity. And that, I think, leads me to the other remarkable thing about Susan's work, along with a, a, a generation of artists, many of whom are in the room today, who pioneered video work and new media work. Um, I think Judith Goddard, Sarah Ferno, many others here. Um, there is here, without there being any loud drums beaten or any banners flying, but there is a profoundly feminist ethos that rides through this, that makes this work, I think, remarkably serious, even as it is remarkably touching in every possible sense of the word. And that, I think, makes it especially appropriate that this artist, with her astounding international reputation, with her gift for having built an extraordinary crew of um, gifted artists and intellectuals around the slate. Not only built it, but maintained it, which is far more difficult. Um, that it should be her, who is our first woman director and professor at the Slade. So I invite you all to demonstrate our affection and admiration for Susan in the traditional manner. Thank you.